Welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. This morning, we're kicking off a new series called Controversial Jesus. We've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mounts, uh, and what we know and understand, especially if you joined us in the last series that Chris and Christina talked about, Salt and Light, is we recognize that, and by the way, I'm super loud. I'm going to annoy some people back there. You guys aren't going to want to hear my voice by the end of the sermon if I stay. Thank you. There you go. Here's what we recognize if you joined us with our Salt and Light series, is we understand that Christians are supposed to be distinct in some way. They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. But the question is, what exactly does different look like? How are followers of Jesus supposed to be distinct? And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to answer that question by looking at some of the more controversial issues of our day, and examine what Jesus had to say about them and what it means for us to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. Issues like sexuality, marriage, and our rights. This morning, we're choosing the light subject of Jesus and politics. Welcome to church. I was actually coaching my son's basketball team a little bit earlier this morning, and it's been such a great Uh, opportunity to uh, be a light, as we're talking about, with a bunch of families and my assistant coach, you know, just keep dripping stuff in there. And I was like, yeah, so, hey, this morning I'm talking about Jesus and politics. And he's like, ooh, I want to hear that one. I'm like, I'll get you the link uh, for that. Uh, Because this is one of those incredibly controversial, heated issues. Uh, It seems that our country's more divided than ever, With the growing polarization between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, hot topics like immigration and climate change are used as weapons to entrench each side into their proverbial corner. In today's climate, uh, politics is actually more than just politics, isn't it? It's emotional. It's deeply personal. And so there's the off chance that over the course of this sermon, you might get angry, (laughs) emotional with me. If that's the case, not to worry. Next week, we're discussing Jesus and anger. (laughs) And how do we respond with those we deeply agree with, uh, disagree with? So I hope you'll join us there. Uh, This morning, I want to wrestle with, I want us to wrestle with thoughtfully and answer well, how are followers of Jesus to respond and engage in these politically divisive days? As followers of Jesus, what is our obligation and our response? A little bit about me as I grew up in Santa Cruz, this strange, weird bubble for many of you, you know it. Being a follower of Jesus in the 90s, our family moved to Santa Cruz uh, in 1990 or 91, I think, either one. I think 1990. Uh, My mom's right there, she's 90. Thank you. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) And what this meant is you were in this odd confluence of conservative Christian values being lived out in a deeply pluralistic, liberal culture. It wasn't until Chicago, because of kind of the incubator that Santa Cruz was, that my eyes were open to the depths of systemic poverty in our country and racial inequality in America. 
It was then our time in Atlanta that opened my eyes to the fact that racism, tragically, is still alive and well in America. But that also, there was this brand of Christianity that I'd never come across, and I didn't understand, whose ideological um, understanding informed their Christian identity and allegiance to Jesus. You see, in Santa Cruz, what's fascinating is when you're in the minority as a follower of Jesus, you don't really care if you're Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative. The only thing that matters is your follower of Jesus, and you band together under that banner. Uh, my first full-time job as a pastor was in Atlanta, Georgia. And while there, as a brand new uh, youth pastor, it was during the Bush and Kerry race. And one night, we had a junior high event at this house, uh, family house. And after the junior high event, there was um, lots of families hanging out on the porch talking. And the, the conversation quickly turned to politics. And as the kids are playing around, the parents just began to slam Democrats, began to slam Kerry and speak just, I mean... It got to the point where I'm like, you are so angry and heated and mean. And being the young youth pastor that I was, I couldn't help but step into the moment. I said this. In light of, because I couldn't help but partly because I'd recently moved from Chicago, where many of my African-American friends were Democrats. And I said, you know... Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the African-American community are actually Democrats. Did you know that the Democratic Party actually does a better job than Republicans about caring for the needy and marginalizing our society? That was offensive. (laughs) And then I had no idea what this next line at the time, I mean, I'm a young 20-year-old youth pastor, how deeply offensive it was. And I said this. You can be a committed follower of Jesus and be a Republican or a Democrat. No one party has the corner of being Christian. Both have strengths. Both have deep brokenness attached to them. And the porch got really quiet. (laughs) And then one by one, families began to just walk away from that moment. And one of the moms leaned over to me and said, you don't really believe that, do you? See, politics is an emotionally charged issue for us. One would hope 15 years later that we would make some sort of progress, especially in the church, but some sort of progress towards unity and oneness and and at least getting on the same page. But 15 years later, the stats tell us we're actually more divided than ever. In fact, a recent Pew Research study shows that we have become more divided over the last 20 years. Uh, And let me just list some of the areas that we're more divided over. These divided states over government aid, how to assist the poor and the needy. Think about health care for everyone, for example. Global warming. The argument whether global warming is even a reality is heated in our environment and our environmental responsibility. Uh, Let's take a real hot topic, immigration. We had a whole government shut down over this subject and the border wall. 
and racial, racial discrimination is heated. And regardless of where you stand, these issues, they evoke something deep inside of us. The Associated Press is doing a whole expose on this topic and writing on all these different areas. And their summary statement of the divided states says this. It's no longer just Republican versus Democrat or liberal versus conservative. It is the 1% versus the 99%, rural versus urban, white men against the world, climate doubters clash with believers, bathrooms have become battlefields, borders are battle lines, sex and race, faith and ethnicity. The melting pot seems to be boiling over. And so the question before us, as followers of Jesus... How do we respond? How do we engage in these politically divisive times the way our Savior invites us and calls us and beckons us to engage? How do we respond in a way that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth instead of a clanging gong? Well, to unpack this, first we got to look at the political landscape of ancient Israel in the time of Jesus so that we can understand the political landscape, the religious landscape of what's going on there. So, because we don't actually understand who Jesus was in his context because we naturally just, it's so easy, but we bring him into our context and we don't understand his world. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, theologian, historian, Uh, New Testament scholar writes this, at exactly the time when Jesus was growing up, think about this, there was a movement. Call it a political movement, a religious movement, or as Josephus, the ancient historian in Jesus' day, called it a philosophy that said it was time for God alone to be king. Now, in ancient Israel, politics and religion were meshed together. What we do when we read the New Testament, we hear the word Pharisee, we hear Jesus talking, we, we immediately take it out of the political realm and move it into the religious or the spiritual realm. And in his day, they were one and the same. And the temple for the Jewish people was the center of power, not just a spiritual center, but in their day, it was also a political Center. And so just like in our day that we have, you know, different political groups, we have Republicans, Democrats, um, Green Party, Tea Party, all sorts of parties. Um, I wish we were throwing more parties, but that's not the case. They had many groups as well. Uh, four main groups I want to cover with you to give you the landscape is first the, the Pharisees. This is the group that we're most familiar with. We know the Pharisees. We hear about the Pharisees. This was the largest political group. This was the largest religious group. There's about 6,000 Pharisees. Uh, these were the ones that had the most influence. And if you wanted to kind of box them in their corner, they were the conservative 
party. They, they believed into the law and the Torah and the, and, and the Old Testament, their Hebrew scriptures, and then they added all these oral traditions, and they are very careful to follow not only the commandments in the Bible, but all the extra oral traditions that had been passed down through the centuries. And the Pharisees believed that God would return and be king, but what happened is Israel hasn't yet got their act together, and so they need to get their act together and repent and begin to live out this perfect, pure life, and then, is, then God would return Israel back to the superpower that it once was. Well, after the Pharisees, then you have this other group called the Sadducees. And let me just, I can't help move past this. I probably don't have time to go down this. But the way you can discern between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. I couldn't help it. I know. I know. Dad joke. Actually, actually, it's dad and pastor joke combined. That's even worse, right? However, the Sadducees would be in the liberal camp. If, if, there, if there's this movement, it's time for God alone to be king, each of these camps are trying to answer it in their own way. The Pharisees, through religious rightness and piety, the Sadducees, through working with the political government, working with Herod, working with Rome, and staying in the seat of power and leveraging the temple and trying to gain influence that way, these two were the most dominant and powerful political religious groups in the day, and they made up what was known as, or members of them, the Great Sanhedrin. This was the ruling, um, basically, supreme court in ancient Israel. This was the most powerful, highest court outside of Rome. And both Pharisees and Sadducees made up this, um, this group, the Great Sanhedrin. Then there's a couple other ones you may not know about, but they were prevalent in Jesus' day. Uh, and just as in our day, the Essenes, they were separatists. He said, okay, for God to be king, alone king, we're looking around at the world, it's messed up, it's screwed up, Israel's jacked up, the, the, what's happening at the temple's messed up, so we're going to go do our own thing. We're going to take our ball and leave, right? And they go and create these own, their own communities trying to follow the Torah in the way they understand. They were separatists, they retreated from society, tried to build their own utopian world in that regards, and for some, you're familiar with the uh, Qumran community, and uh, where we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's an Essene group. The final group in this uh, political landscape are the Zealots, or the extremists. The Zealots were a violent extremist national group, and if they're trying to answer that question, it's time for God alone to be king, but how? They say, we're going to revolt and we're going to make maybe some assassinations. We're going to do a coup attempt. In fact, in 66 AD, eventually the zealots, the Pharisees, and Sadducees all team up together to revolt. And Rome comes and crushes them. 70 AD, the temple's destroyed. And actually, that's the last time we see the Sadducees because they're so connected to the temple uh, there. So, um, and if you think about in Jesus' day, remember when Jesus, they're saying, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus? And, and Pontius Pilate's like, hey, you know what? Do you really want to crucify him? Uh, yeah, we do. Well, we have this tradition that we release one prisoner, and they say Barabbas or Jesus. And they say, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was a zealot. 
Barabbas was an extremist, and he was, he was you know, essentially arrested for being an extremist and um, executing that out from what we understand and know that he, was, he killed somebody to accomplish those ends. And so this is the political landscape that Jesus steps into. And what you need to understand is when Jesus steps onto the scene, he was immediately considered not just a religious person, but a political figure as well. And the problem, the problem was he wasn't conforming to any one of these groups. This, then, is the unorthodox rabbi. Who's, everyone's asking, what's his deal? What's his angle? What's going on? The controversial Messiah who doesn't fit in. And then Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to bring such great clarity to his purpose and why he's here and why none of these boxes that he fits into. And he says this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. That's what the zealots wanted to do. The law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Let that sink in for a second, because I, 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 right there, I, I, you're like, I don't get it. I didn't come to abolish the law. Now think about what he was doing. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees would say, no, you can't do that. He was loving on the disenfranchised. He, he, he was bucking up against all the religious political leaders and confronting them with who they are. And he's like, you just need to know, my aim and goal isn't to destroy the law and the prophets. That's just shorthand for all of the Hebrew scripture in their day. My aim is to fulfill it. And in that one line, Jesus then declares his... Um, like, he put his hat in the ring for Messiah. This is how Scott McKnight says it. Listen to this. We must consider the mind-numbing claim here by Jesus. He is claiming that he fulfills in salvation, historical, theological, and moral manner what the Torah and the prophets anticipated and predicted and preliminarily taught. The Messiah in their day was fundamentally thought of as a political figure who would free Israel from the bondage of Rome and set up an autonomous kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill everything in here. It all points to me. Remember Moses, the great prophet who led you out of Egypt, and you think he's great? Well, what he started, I'm going to fulfill. You remember Joshua and how he led you into the promised land and a new people began. What he began and the leading he began, I am the fulfillment of that. Do you remember David and the great king? And you've been waiting for a great king and you've been looking for a great king. Hello, I'm here. I'm the fulfillment of the long-awaited divinic hope. And do you remember the prophets? As Israel in exile had wandered away from their God, and, and they said, okay, he's going to send another. I am the fulfillment. I am that one. Jesus is staking his claim as the Messiah, that a new party is being formed, and it bucks the trend with all the other 
parties. And then what he does is so brilliant is then he elevates the scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, because he's not going like, I'm fulfilling them, so they're going away. Listen to what he says. He says, for, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This new movement is rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. This new movement is deeply connected to what God had already began moving thousand years before that. What I want you to not miss here is Jesus viewed the Hebrew scriptures, the art, what we call the Old Testament, as authoritative. He also rejected the oral tradition that was passed down that the Pharisees held as authoritative. In fact, you're going to hear in the weeks to come where Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, confronting all the oral misinterpretation of the scripture or the additions on to the Hebrew scripture. And he's saying, hey, this word is powerful. I'm the fulfillment of it, and it's authoritative. And you begin to bring your life under the authority of God's word. And then he begins to define the boundary lines. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of these least commands, he's defining the boundary lines of this new movement, and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, kingdom of heaven was a politically charged word. Everyone's awaiting God to restore the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and he's beginning to shift the conversation. Everyone's looking for a time for God alone to be king. Yeah, kingdom of heaven come, but everyone has a picture in their mind of what that looks like, and he's beginning to reshape that picture, not to their picture, not to their desires, but to God's heart and activity in the world. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. Notice practices and teaches. It's easy to teach. It's hard to practice, right? We'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The the Pharisees had this way of understanding the Hebrew scriptures known as the light and the heavy. And so the light commands were the ones that weren't that important, and the heavy commands were the ones that were really important. That's why the conversation you hear in Jesus' day, you know, which one is the greatest command? This was literally their arguments day in and day out, because there's 613 commands in the scripture, and they're like, we can't follow all of them. Okay, that's hard. So let's make the important list over here, and let's make the like, eh, you know, if you get to it, if it works, if it's a bad, you don't really have to do that list whatsoever. And then Jesus says this. He defines this boundaries. He says, whoever sets aside the least, the light of these commands and teaches others accordingly, they'll be called least. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, they'll be called great. And then he sets the bar so incredibly high. And this, I believe, friends, is our word. And we'll close with this. Uh, Not right now. I still got time. Don't worry. Uh, But we're... This is really a a powerful word for us as followers of Jesus. Jesus then sets the bar higher, not lower. See, sadly, our understanding of grace 
we tend to then begin to set the bar lower, and yet grace beckons us into a brand new life. Notice what Jesus says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, would be Sadducees. The Pharisees in their day set the standard for righteousness. They followed incredible detail. They they measured out their spices to tithe them. And the Pharisees were concerned with public reputation, however, rather than their own personal private righteousness. And Jesus is going to set the bar, and he's going to say, actually, actually, there's a greater righteousness. I'm going to bring it, and I'm going to do a heart transformation because the issue isn't outward modification. It's heart transformation that your heart begins to respond to Jesus, and you just want to do what's right. That's the greater righteousness. I believe in this text we find four things that show us how to respond and engage in these politically divisive times. The question that we must answer is, how then should we live? Jesus, right out from the gate, staked his claim to Messiahship, staked his claim to being the anointed, awaited one, staked his claim to king. And so, how should we then live? As a result, put your hope in Jesus. Not the government, not politics, nor America. The American dream is not your hope. The government, and somehow, uh, you're like, some of you are like, I don't put my hope in the government. Well, yeah, you kind of do, actually. Because everyone's wrestling with, let's just talk about, we got a bunch of millennials, and you're looking at education, and you're looking at, how am I going to afford college and the university? university, and then I have all this stuff, and millennials are the first generation since World War II that are expected to live under the level of their parents' generation. And so guess what we're doing? I'm not a millennial, but I want to be. Guess what you're doing? You're looking to the government and policy to somehow save you. Put your hope, put your trust, your first allegiance my allegiance, Jesus. I'm a, I'm a, who are you? I'm a Jesus follower. Are you American? Yes, but I'm a Jesus follower first. Are you Republican? Maybe. Are you a Democrat? Maybe. I, I just, I'm helping every, all of you out. But I'm a Jesus follower. Like, what defines me? Who is my Lord and Savior? Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, we want a religious leader, not a king. We want someone to save our souls, not rule our world. Or if we want a king, someone to take charge of our world, what we want is someone to implement the policies we already embrace, just as Jesus' contemporaries did. But if Christians don't get Jesus right, what chance is there that other people will bother much with him? Jesus offers himself 
as the doorway into the life that is truly life. And he says, how you step across it is you say, you are my king and I'm following you alone. My allegiance is to you. Someone once said, I'm not exactly sure who said this. He said, uh, the liberal, when meeting Jesus, should become more conservative. And the conservative, when meeting Jesus, should become more liberal. That our life is transformed by Jesus. Our politics are transformed by Jesus. Our love for others is transformed by Jesus. How should we then live? Put your hope in Jesus. Did you notice then Jesus held the Hebrew scriptures as authority and he rejected the oral passed down tradition. How should we live? Elevate biblical truth over, over political views. Elevate biblical truths over political views. The Bible, God's word, this is for followers of Jesus, should inform our politics, not our politics informing our understanding of Scripture. Here's what we do, and we all do it, so there's, there's grace, but we've got to change. We have a selective reading of the Scripture. We like certain parts with what we agree with, and we don't like other parts, and so we choose that part, and we have a pick-and-choose theology. We have a bias confirmation when we read the Scripture and, it, and look for the parts that, you know, naturally we agree with. Instead of bringing our lives under the authority of God and saying, okay, okay God, okay, God, this is your word. And you get to define what's true and not true, right and what's wrong, what's moral, what's immoral. And I am going to bring my life under your word. And so, let me ask you, how do you read the Bible? How do you read the Bible? Let me, let me ask a different question first. <clears throat> do you read the Bible? <laughs> Come on now. Okay. We have a Bible reading plan so that you can get into God's Word. Chances are most of the things that you have formulated as an opinion and a value and belief was passed down from somebody or read from somewhere, not necessarily from God's Word. Man, you're doing a great job if after this sermon you're wrestling with what I said and I'm going to get into God's word and see if it's right, not just take Ryan's word that it's right. Get into God's word. Get into God's word. Let God's word get into you and form you. Scott McKnight, a theologian, he writes about five different ways that we read the Bible. I'm going to just give you three for now. He says, one way that we read the Bible is informationally. I think many read it this way. I read to know what it says. It's kind of like a textbook. I want to know a little bit more about Jesus. And, and, and if we're honest, that's, that's kind of the only way many of us know how to read. And I'm going to do a little micro training on how to read the Bible. In about two or three weeks, you'll see it coming. It's going to be after each service, like 10 minutes long. I want to help you, like in 10 minutes, read the Bible for all it's worth. And we're going to get into it real quick. But part of it is you just read information. Like, okay, Jesus was a rabbi in Palestine, and I got the information. However, the second way that some of us read the Bible is socio-pragmatically. This means that we read it to foster and further our own political, theological, ideological, or social agenda. 
This happens when we speak on issues, actually just step up and pray about issues, when there's racial issues, when there's immigration issues. In fact, there's, there's one time where, where we're praying as a church, and this is what I see. We're praying as a church for the immigrant. We're praying as a church for kids, especially, that are stuck in the whole divide. And guess what? The person who is deeply conservative in their values, man, they hit us and slam us. You're just a liberal mouthpiece. It gets so quiet in here. And the person who's deeply liberal in their belief, you know what they say? Why aren't you strong enough? And we get hit on both sides. And I go, amen. Amen. Here's what I know because of what the Bible says. God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed and loves those who are deeply hurting and needing. And Matthew 25, just look it up and read it. And he says, whenever you feed me, those who are hung, hunger and thirst, like you fed me. Your, your understanding of scripture will be vastly changed if you travel outside the U.S. and visit Christians who are suffering Christians who are in, uh, undergoing persecution, and you'll realize we have a deeply embedded health and wealth understanding of the Scriptures. Finally, how do you read the Bible formationally? Formationally. Read it with the heart open to receive from God at a spiritual, in, intuitive, devotional, and relational level. Like our, Just do this with our reading plan. Start and just say, God, I really want to hear from you. Would you speak to me? And you take time to quiet your heart and let him just kind of all the day get away. And then you read this text. You're just reading along a chapter a day and go, God, what, what do you want to say to me? Just that simple question, God will begin to speak to you and begin to point out things. And even during your day, He'll highlight some of the things you read and bring it to mind when you're encountering somebody. That you'd begin to go to his word and go, no, God wants to form Christ in me. And he's going to use his word by the spirit of God to do that. How should we then live? Put our hope in Jesus. Elevate biblical truths over political views. Number three, practice the subversive ways of the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice Jesus said he called his followers not to just teach, but to put into practice the ways of the kingdom, the kingdom ways. This word subversive, Miriam Wester defines it this way, a systematic attempt to overthrow or undermine a government or political system by a person's working secretly from within. Like we're called to be subversive. We're, we're called to be salt and light, to be in the world, but not of the world. And we do, we're either Essenes or Zealots, separatists or extremists. And there is a third way and an invitation for followers of Jesus to be the light of the world. So how do we do that? Walk in integrity, number one. I don't have time to read these texts. I invite you to dive into them. But if we look at American politics what we'd see is followers of Jesus have lost their voice and their moral authority because of the way they're living. We, we tell everybody else how to live, but we don't hold ourselves accountable to it. 
What if we just began to hold ourselves accountable to it and let our lives speak for themselves? Number two, walk, honor authority. Honor authority. This does not mean to agree with. You'll notice in 1 Peter 2, you'll also notice in Romans 13, both under evil Roman regimes that were persecuting the Christians, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter are calling followers of Jesus to respect the authority. It's so subversive. Doesn't mean you disagree. Doesn't mean you do everything they say. It, it means that you live lives in such sacrificial way like Martin Luther King Jr. that we celebrate and Chris talked so well about last week. I'm pers- personally reading the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. Dietrich Bonhoeffer under the German regime. Jesus Christ. And the early Christians who would not kneel and declare Caesar is Lord, but declared Jesus is Lord. And yet they didn't try to throw a coup or revolt. They just simply loved people. And when they wouldn't bow the knee, they accepted the responsibility. That's how you honor. Number three, obey the law. Unless it violates the law of Christ. Like, like real simply, one of the things in Romans 13, it talks about pay your taxes. No follower of Jesus should be shirking on their taxes, period. Obey the law. Work with integrity. Now, one, one word here. Just because it's legal doesn't make it moral or biblical. The law of Christ supersedes the law of the land. Number four, pray for your leaders. But I don't like them. That's not what I said. But I don't agree with them. That's not what I said. Actually, it's not even what I said. Who cares what I said? Paul tells Timothy, pray for your rulers and authorities and kings. Pray for them. Pray for local governments. Pray for our California government. Pray for the nation. And then do what is good. The whole book of Titus is dedicated to this. We taught it in the spring last year. Do what is good. What does that mean? Do what is good no matter what the cost. Do what is good means standing up against evil. Doing what is good means speaking up for the voiceless and standing up for the poor and the oppressed. Think about this. That list right there, how subversive this is. Imagine if you just did that at your workplace or your campus. Imagine at your workplace and the way you worked, you walked with integrity when a workplace is just trying to push others down to push your, get yourself up, right? Imagine if you honored your boss even though you didn't like him and he was a jerk or she was a jerk. Imagine if you just went to the T of the law of what's the boundary set for you. You began to pray for those of your coworkers and you just chose, I'm going to do what's good. I'm going to do what's good. I'm going to do what's good. Salt, light, impact. It's that simple and that difficult all at the same time. How then should we live? Put your hope in Jesus. Elevate biblical truths over political. Practice the subversive ways of the kingdom. And finally, 
when in doubt, there's really only one thing you need to know. When in doubt, there's really only one thing you need to know. Jesus set the bar higher for his followers, not lower. What does it mean for our righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees? On the night he was betrayed, he issues a brand new command. A command to replace the 613 other commands. He says there's just one thing you need to know. That's it. Let's simplify this whole thing. He says this, a new command I give you. By the way, if you're in your notes, underline that word command. Let's just get real clear. This is not a suggestment for your life. This is not Jesus going, here's a nice idea. Hey, man, if you, if you can, this would be great. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this isn't for you. You live however you want, although I think you'll agree with it. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for us how we are to live, who we are to be, and what life is meant to be like. A new command I give to you. What is it? Love one another. Love one another. I call this the law that unites us all. Every single person would agree that if we simply loved one another, this would be a better world. Right? Every single one of us. I don't care whether you believe in God, don't believe in God. You would agree that, that our nation would be a better nation if we just loved one another. Everyone would agree that, that, that politics would be so much better for people if we just loved one another. However, here's the problem with love. We all define love differently, don't we? How you define love is probably different how I define love. And every single one of us answers what is love just a little bit different. And here's the genius of Jesus. He didn't leave the definition of love up to you or me. He didn't say love one another and go figure it out. He said love one another. Now, what did he say? Listen, listen, listen. As I have, what? Loved you, so you must love one another. Well, how did Jesus love us? The eternal God left glory and his throne and humbled himself, becoming a, a, a baby, vulnerable, walked this planet, took on flesh in humility. The God of the universe literally walked in your shoes and then died the death you and I were meant to die. And he says to his followers, now do the same. Now do the same for the person you disagree with. Now do the same with the person who's putting you down. Now do the same. And if you do that, listen, listen, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the night he's betrayed. He's sitting around the table with his disciples, his last few words. And one of the things we miss is who's around that table. We get that, you know, Peter, the hothead's around the table. And James and John, sons of thunder, you know, they had anger issues. And um, Thomas, well, he was indecisive and doubting. You know, we get that. There's two other people that, well, more than that, but I want you to notice. 
There's a guy named Simon the Zealot sitting around that table. Jesus invited one of the extremists and said, I want to show you a new way. And then there was Matthew, the tax collector. He would have been on the side of the Sadducees and and cooperating with the empire that is oppressing the Jewish people. These two men had nothing in common. Hated each other. And under the banner of Jesus were one. And he says to them, I didn't ask you to agree with each other. No, it's bigger. It's better than that. I asked you to love each other. See, the highest bar in our culture today is tolerance. That's not bad. We can talk about how tolerance doesn't mean what it means anymore because tolerance now means agree with me. That's a whole other sermon for another day. Jesus raises the bar, says, no, 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 I don't want you to tolerate them. I want you to love them the way I loved you. I want you to look at that person and say, I am going to give my life for you. That is the call of the follower of Jesus. And when we do that, the whole world will know you are my disciples. It's our care, Tertullian said this, ancient church father, of the helpless our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. May it be so once more. Where a watching world doesn't know and call us about what we're against, but who we're for. Would you stand with me? I'm going to have to close this out. I want to close this way. So what do we do with this? How do we respond? I I just want to give you a little confession. Something in me that I've seen over the last, actually, two months. Uh, Not too long ago, um, I had someone talk to me, and it 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 was disrespectful. And it bothered me. And, and internally, I was like, how could they talk to me that way? Another time, I had someone not give me recognition that I thought I earned. And it bothered me. How could they not, over, not see me and overlook me? Another time, I was doing something, and someone just treated me like a servant. Not even a thank you. And it bothered me. And there's this tension in my soul. And I was wrestling with that. Because what I wanted to do was react in anger. What I wanted to do was put someone in their place. And the Spirit of God came knocking and said, no, no, no. You know what it is. It's pride in you. See, the test of servanthood is when you get treated like a servant. And you say... I'll take the towel again. Jesus, the servant of all. See, the call for us, church, 
is to recognize the pride that we've allowed to grip our hearts. And this is my process, friends. I'm just saying I'm letting the Spirit of God work in me, and I hope he's going to be working in you. The pride that has anchored us, that has caused us to right fight and say, no, 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 no. Jesus, have your way. I love what um, Philippians 2.1 says. Bring it up on the screen. Therefore, I want to send you out on this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Do you? Do you have any encouragement? If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Now notice this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. Then it goes on to say this. Next slide. In your relationships with one another, in your politics, in your conversations at work with friends, family, with enemies, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of his servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He what? So what we got to do, church, to move forward on this issue, we got to humble ourselves. Becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Christian life is a life filled with taking steps of cross-shaped decisions for the sake of the other, for the sake of the world. May we once more be known for how we love the way Jesus loved. Have a great week. See you next week.